This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. G'day podcast fans, it's Rowan Leach here, Mixed Farming Advisor for Local Land Services. I'm stepping in for Nerily on this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Tony Horan. Tony runs a cattle enterprise on his 170-acre property, Briar Rose, just west of Bajerabong. Tony runs around 30 Angus cows plus followers, as well as some cereal cropping for hay and silage production. In today's episode, we'll take a look at how Tony utilises the travelling stock routes near his property, which enable him to ease the grazing pressure on his own farm. Tony also discusses how the 2022 floods impacted his property and how the stock routes have gotten him out of a tight spot on a number of occasions, during both floods and droughts. And finally, Tony explains why it's important to have at least one pet cow in your business. I sat down with Tony for this chat over a cup of tea at Briar Rose. Let's dive in. G'day listeners. Today I'm with Tony Horan at Bajerabong, about 40 kilometres west of Forbes. Tony, welcome to the Seeds for Success podcast. Thanks, Rowan. Thank you. If you could just start off by telling us a bit about your farm here at Briar Rose. It's just a a small water course, you basically call it. (laughs) That's uh, pretty typical of the Bajerabong region, isn't it? Just a wet little place down here. I bought this place, it's 20 years ago, really. And um, my father worked for the Herberts, the neighbours. And I knew what I was buying, but I needed a horse paddock. Had too many pet cows in town, in York Street. So come out here and my older brother, Greg, who still worked for Herberts, he said, why did you buy that, Tony? He said, it floods there when it's not even flooding. And I said, well, I needed a horse paddock and a cow, like pet cows. But it's always been run as a, a farming enterprise for me, whether it was sheep. Used to always have, you know, a mob of old ewes and that, and it's worked quite well over the years. You're running cattle on it mostly now, or have you got some still horses running around or...? just cattle at the moment. I used to shear for a living years ago and I'd shear my own sheep, you know, and and look after them and, well, my back just wore out. So I couldn't shear anymore and I said if I can't look after them, I can't have them. So I predominantly just went cattle. And cattle are good with the floods and things like that. Yeah, probably not as many foot issues, say, in yeah, a mob of old merino ewes, like every time you touch them, you'd have to do their feet and it chase flies, but they are more profitable than a beast because you've got wool, you've got lamb, but the cattle, different times in flood times, you used to send them off somewhere and this time was the biggest flood in record and never sent them anywhere. Little calves and cows, little calves will go put their noses in the air and they'll just walk through it if you can get around them. Yeah, where were your cattle sort of staying? Have you, most of your farm here would have gone under during last the year's floods? A whole lot was over, like, yes. Sent them east of here up towards the Jerobong. There was a high spot there. That's where they stayed. And my neighbour, Murray Brown, we end up combining our mobs and put them up there together. 
and just run a bit of tape because they'll walk through water just to see what's there. So to keep them contained, run a bit of electric fence. Yeah, they're curious beasts, aren't they? They are, they are. And their babies will follow them too sometimes. They aren't good on the country. Like I held them in here for as long as I could, but there's not one square inch that they didn't put a hoof hole in. So in here, you're meaning sort of behind the levee around your house? No, no, there's a high spot over there, sort of northeast, I'd suppose you call, of the house here. And left them in there for quite a while, then brought them up inside the levee and fed them hay, but then just decided to take them up the reserve. And I used to put them in the uh, stockyards up there at Greg Hodges. Yeah, Dale said, put them up there. Didn't have to worry about water. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> they had a drink <laughs> and they got a feed. Yeah, so there was enough feed around at the time? Yeah, oh, it was lush. Plenty of rain, I guess, one oh, of the benefits yeah. of a you know, clover and that sort of thing. It was everywhere. It was beautiful feed. It didn't worry me as much as it worried my wife, the issue of the water, like a, a little side-by-side buggy. And the water from here up there, there's water all the way till you get up past Slimbridge Road and that. So that's about three or four k's away? Yeah, it would be up yep. there. But it gets no deeper, like 300 would have been the deepest of it sort of thing. And in the buggy, it's not an issue. A couple of dogs, if they get off the track and you, the dogs, same deal. They they can swim and bark. and <laughs> oh, It would have been a fun exercise for them. Oh, yeah. Like I said, it didn't worry me as much as it worried my wife. Like she was still going to Bajerabong to school, even though school was pretty much closed down. But she was just over it. Look, we had water running over the road out there for three months. Didn't worry me. I, I had the dogs and the birds and that sort of thing. It was just very nice. It's good to see more of a minor flood and see the recovery that happens to the land once it, you get water come go over it. And a quick little inundations normally can be quite beneficial. But some of those that long period of water sitting on country last year was a little bit over the top for some. Well, it left it. Lunascaped. It still hasn't recovered. It needs fences picking up, timber taken off, and then we have the lipia weed out here and it just thrives. And it's in the 20 years, like every year, I'd just each paddock would get a turn, like just plough it up to control the lipia and put some cereal in there, oats or barley or whatever. And a lot of the time, you'd, you could make hay. And then the next year, it was the other paddock's turn. This time, it's going to have to be the lot. Oh, yeah. Lipia is, um, loves bare ground and loves colonising, and then it just takes over. It's the only thing that grows. It's all about grazing management, getting out there and spraying all of these reserves along the river. It's going to be virtually impossible to get rid of it, but it's the best way to, to manage it is, is with grazing management. It's not very competitive with other grasses like clover and and ryegrass once they're established and going, but whenever there's that bare ground, it'll just smoke it. And so it's fair to say that you're probably smack bang in the floodplain here, so it's all alluvial soil and more of your heavier clays and stuff. Yeah. Over the years, like 20 years, some of the smaller floods, like it's like a big irrigation bay. It comes out up at the top of it, runs down through and it's gone, you know, and that just generate all the moisture, the grasses and that sort of thing. But this flood, I think the only way to 
make it better would be chisel plough. Bust the clods up and get rid of the lipia. You'll never get rid of all the lipia, but to uh, compete against it is cultivate and then put cereal. So do you do much farming here? Do you um, do much cropping? I've always put cereal in, made hay and had some really good crops over the years. Do you sow many pastures or is it any like lucerne, for example? Or have done lucerne at one stage, but that was after the 16 floods. And so then it never rained for four years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And loosen with the mainly cattle enterprise, it yeah. gets a bit tricky when you've only got a, a limited area and number of paddocks as well. Yeah. Cereal is the safest thing, like a bit of barley, a bit of oats. And then, yes, if everything runs normally, you get the opportunity to make some nice hay or silage or whatever. And strip a bit of grain, put some oats in the silo or barley. Barley's good value. Like I said, it's kept me occupied. (laughs) (laughs) For the other 99% of the time that it's not flooding, it's a beautiful part of the world. Tony, so just as part of your operation, you mentioned the the reserve just out the front of your place before. It seems that you're a fairly consistent user of the travelling stock reserves. So what's been your experience there? With the reserve? just very beneficial to me. Like it's, you're paying adjustment, but they're here. You send your cattle away and it's not always that convenient unless, you know, and the way I run my cattle, like nothing's done right. The bull's in 24-7. <laughs> Every calf that hits the gra- ground normally is, <laughs> it's an income. So I, I do, I like to watch them go out. I keep an eye on them. Yeah, it keeps me occupied. The reserve has been very beneficial. Like you can put stock out there and there could be a, a lush of clover and that in different spots and the, the cattle, they'll go to the clover, but they're not a silly animal. There's that many variety of grasses out there. I've never, ever lost a beast out there with bloat or anything like that. And people have said to me, aren't you worried about them getting bloat? And I say, well... They've got the option of eating that clover and then they'll go and have a bit of harder grass or whatever. So yeah. It's important that you give them that diversity, with, particularly with bloat, because, yeah, grasses just bring that risk back down so they can grab a mouthful or two of the clover and then back into the grass. Yes, which is what they do. So how many cows have you got here on your 170 acres? Generally try to have at least 30 breeding cows. And when I didn't have cows, I'd always try and run 350 or so merino ewes, 400. But then when they carve and when they have lambs, well... Yeah, that's (laughs) when you start running up a few numbers, yeah. Oh, well, that's when you've got to look for that extra paddock. Yeah, and the reserve has been that for you. That's the extra paddock. Even in the drought, they have that green pick and, and then they'll rummage around and their taste buds, the longer it stays dry the more their taste buds change. They'll lick anything up after a while. And crave that bit of green. Yeah, oh, and then, you know, and they'll get a bit of roughage into them from somewhere. Brasses that you didn't think that they'd eat, but you'll see them do that. And yeah, they always seem to do well. How long have you been using the stock routes for? It would be 20 years, yes. And uh, you would have seen a fair bit of change in the process over that time? Yes, it has, like different board members and different ideas and, and that sort of thing. And, and it has changed, different ranges. 
you know, and you just sort of got to go with them. So can you talk me through the process of applying for a grazing permit? Well, at the present time, yes. You ring your ranger and he'll tell you what you have to do. You have to have your stock checked, mostly by the ranger, like they'll check them. And at one stage there, one person, she needed to count them. She's no better counter than I was. <laughs> <laughs> Once everything's in place and you've got your animal health statements and your public liability insurances and everything there, and and then it is a pretty simple process. Your numbers and just put them out there and keep an eye on them. That's it. Make sure they don't go too far east or too far west. <laughs> have you had any issues with traffic or any issues out on the reserve? No, I never have. No, never had any issues with traffic. I guess if you've been doing the same thing for 20 years, people probably know that this part of the stretch of the road, you've got to watch out for some cattle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, occasionally. One time, some young fellas, there was a party on down the road and they thought it'd be fun if they pinched me signs. <laughs> anyway, a bit like an old dog with a bone. I found them <laughs> and I got me signs back. <laughs> so uh, how long do you generally, yeah, what's your process with putting your stock out there? Do you put them out there and leave them out there or are you changing them sort of daily? What's the go there? Yeah, no, I put them out there. That's a part of the uh, requirement of the, it's not a travelling stock permit. It's just a grazing out in daylight hours. So put them out in the morning and back in the evening in and out sort of thing. And so if it is looking a bit better in your paddocks than what it is in the reserve or vice versa, do you, you can have the option then of, of when you put stuff out or are you putting stuff out sort of regardless because you're paying for it? Well, I only pay for the days that I put them out. Like, yeah, so when there's plenty of grass inside or I have access to a, another paddock right beside I utilise that, I use that, or a lot of the time I save those bits up for if I can't be here, like I still do a bit of work off farm and if I can't be here, I leave them in. Go away for three or four days, leave them in. When I get home, put them out. Just use it as a paddock. And the beauty of that now is that I pay for the days that I use it. So pretty flexible then in your business. It is. It is flexible and beneficial. Well, that's good to hear. That's probably enough spruiking of the uh, travelling stock routes. Maybe we'll start talking about your cattle operation. So when I was organising this interview with you, I had a bit of a chuckle when you said your only commitment in terms of organising a meeting to sit down was your cattle. So it's probably pretty fair to say that you're pretty attached to them. Yes. And you've got to have at least one pet. It's very good for a person's sanity to be able to lean on a cow, scratch its back and look across at the others. <laughs> I've always had one. Yeah. And what's the one at the moment? A little potty thing that we read. She's quiet and she'll still come up to you and you give her a scratch and she'll even let you touch a calf and that sort of thing. And I've always had one of those. And then there's some there that you can't go near them when they've got a calf for a week. <laughs> Good mothers, those ones. <laughs> when I was younger and could move, they didn't worry me, but now I'm very cautious. <laughs> so what breed 
of cattle have you got? You would say they're predominantly Angus, but Angus Limousin Cross. That's the breed. And so did you first buy a small mob and you've bred up or what's been your your story with your cattle? Well, initially I started off with a uh, Santa, Santa Catrudus sort of. Found a little calf on the edge of the road, bought it home, read it, AI'd it, bought it to a Santa and had Santas and then decided that I liked Santa Catrudus cattle. But then over the years, as nice as they are and as hardy as they are, the dollar factor. So then I did, I went, had predominantly Santa cattle and got a black bull and that was good. Then, yeah, went away from them and bred into mostly Angus and then was convinced to go into limousines then. So it was limousine over black cattle, but always have kept heifers and turned calves into cows and slowly build them up. So what's been your sort of perspective on some of the different breeds? You said maybe the Santas were a bit more drought tolerant and hardy, sort of do well in a tough season. What about the Angus and the Limousin? What have been their sort of characteristics in your opinion? Limousin cattle, they've been here for a long time and they are as durable as a lot of the other breeds. But just seeing mobs of cattle come down the reserve over the years... And yeah, I do think the hardiest on the road, moving, making do, Santa Catrudis, Santas. As an old rover bloke said, you can tie them up at a pine tree, he said, and they'll make a feed of it. <laughs> and pretty right. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I've not heard that before. And so where do the Angus rank in there? Just the simple fact that there's the premium for the black coat. Pretty much. It's a shame to hear that when it's, I'm probably more of a, not so much thinking about the dollars as much in my role, but I'd much rather see a big diversity of cattle sort of suit each for their own reason and purposes, but it's, it's heading more and more that way of the, of the Angus cow, isn't it? The Santa cattle, they're good doers. They're good carvers predominantly. They might only be a, a small calf, but they grow quite well. But in the yards and that sort of thing, when you go to sell them, they, you can have a very nice looking beast and the dollar difference is ridiculous. Then the same with the limousines, beautiful big cows, and they can do it pretty hard as well. But steers and heifers, like in the sale yards, I've found that the heifers aren't far behind the steers price-wise. And then the Angus, the, well, the Anguses that I have, aren't overly big and they're a bit like when you go back to a, a sheep, like a crossbred, a big, nice first crossbred ewe, she takes a lot more to keep going and produce that nice fat lamb a heap more than an honest old merino ewe. That's right, yeah. Yeah, they all have their pluses. And then it's the uh, colour factor, you know, the agent. I said they're a motley looking lot, like some of them aren't jet black because they've got the limousine in them, but they still produce a good calf and he just said they're the right color anyway black yeah it does come down to finances in the end so at the moment the market's pretty tough it's really fallen away in a heap the last few months from the high prices of 2022 bit of a tough season is that going to have any influence in in your planning in the short term 
well, it, it's just going to get to a certain, like I have a, a lot of young cattle there because of the way I run them all together. <laughs> sometimes the best way to wean them is sell them. And I have some there that I just don't really want to sell them for nothing, but it'll come to a stage where it'll just have to happen. It's a bit like before when the drought was on. You know, I hung on and hung on for as long as I could, but I eventually had to offload and I kept nine little heifers. And now I've got a heap of them again. <laughs> I hung on and, and just kept, got a new bull and just kept on keeping heifers and they've all done a marvellous job, but they're not worth much at the moment. So I thought I'll ring my agent and I'll say, now, you tell me when they're rock bottom because that's when I'll sell. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Buy at the top and ride it all the way down to the bottom. That's, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, when I'll give them all me hay and that sort of thing. Yeah. Tony, I've had a great time. Thanks for having me out here. Right, eh? Thanks, Rowan. Very good. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time. <laughs>